In a world with too much pop culture to consume, one woman and one man will argue about it until they get bored. It's an epic battle between obsession and indifference, and the winner will determine, well, very little actually, Emily Jones and Eric Johnson star in Giant Geek vs. Mega Noob. Whoever wins, we're still losers. Welcome to Giant Geek vs. Mega Noob, the podcast where we argue about something one of us is totally obsessed with. And the other has never even seen. I'm Emily Jones. And I'm Eric Johnson. If this is your first time listening, you can find more Giant Geek vs. Mega Noob at gvnpodcast.com. And you can also find all of our past episodes on iTunes, and now we're on Google Play as well. This week we're watching the film noir classic The Big Sleep. Just like our last adventure in noir, it stars Humphrey Bogart, and we previously watched In a Lonely Place. Uh, This time Humphrey is acting opposite his frequent co-star and real-life wife, Lauren Bacall. It wasn't their first or last time on the screen together, but it's perhaps their most well-known. Bogart plays author Raymond Chandler's famous detective Philip Marlowe in a movie notorious for its tangled intrigue. Bacall is his client's daughter, but that is all that Emily will tell me for now because I have never seen this movie. And I am so excited that we're watching it. <laughs> I've been looking forward to this one. This one's been on the list, I think, since the very it, beginning. I, I think it has, too, actually. There's actually, we added... Um, I think all of the rest of the Bogart Bacall screen <laughs> collaborations are on the list, but those were added later when I, in a horrified shock, discovered that you hadn't seen them. No, this one I think has been on there from the beginning, and I'm really excited about it because this is kind of like the, this is sort of like the, this may be paired with Maltese Falcon, like it's maybe a little bit of a toss up, is like kind of my movie equivalent of my relationship with The Tale of Two Cities. Uh, which okay, we read wow. at the beginning of last season where like I've read it just like an unconscionable number of times and will never <laughs> tire of it. This movie, honestly, let's see. I watched, I own it on DVD, obviously. I watched it like, I don't know, two or three weeks ago. I'm super excited to watch it right now. It's going to be uh, in Savannah where I live um, on the big screen in a couple months and I'm super excited and totally going to go see it then. I never tire of it. And similar to A Tale of Two Cities, I have a really good handle on the plot, but like I'm still not a hundred percent sure every time what's going on because it's like oh my mega God. complicated. Yeah, <laughs> I, I need to get some coffee before we start this. Yeah, please. you don't want to <laughs> fall asleep or lose track of who people are. Definitely. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll get get some coffee, get some tea, get some you know, uh, inject some some illegal substances or something. Don't inject illegal substances just because we yeah. watched Train Spotting two episodes ago does not mean that we're now advocating for all kinds of substance use, Eric. I learned it from watching you, Emily. I learned no. If what uh, you took from train spotting was that you should do drugs, then like wow. Maybe I did miss the point after we all. We definitely yeah. watch different movies. <laughs> okay, well we're gonna go watch this movie, The Big Sleep, and we're gonna talk about it after the break. Enjoy. Hey guys, Eric and I are off watching The Big Sleep. In Eric's case, it's his first time watching the movie. And I'm really trying to pay careful attention. Apparently, I need to be very carefully watching this and not falling asleep. Yeah, no, don't fall asleep. There's a lot of stuff going on and twists and turns and craziness. And, and as we always do in the second part of this podcast, we're going to spoil like most of those twists and turns. Uh, so you definitely want to watch the movie, both to be able to understand what the hell we're talking about, um, and also just so you don't have it ruined for you. So you can kind of ruin things like that if if you don't if you don't follow along with us then yeah. 
to that end, you can rent it from all the usual online streaming places. It's on iTunes, Amazon Video, and Vudu uh, for $2.99 each, and then on YouTube and Google Play for $3.99. Whatever your streaming video poison is, pick it, rent the movie, and watch before you go on. And we're back. We just finished watching The Big Sleep with Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, and a bunch of other talented people. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about this movie, I feel. Uh, but before... A bunch of other talented people, including William Faulkner, who I forgot just who kind of ca- it. casually wrote the screenplay. Yeah, yeah, I actually knew that going in. I think there's some... I did too. I just kind of forgot. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, but I'd never seen it. Like, I, I think there, there's a, maybe... A, book where it's someone who's complaining about Faulkner's writing and he says I decided to take a break from books and go see a movie called The Big Sleep (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah no I definitely uh, maybe like his screenplays better than his books personally Well, we're going to talk about the, the movie, with the screenplay and, and everything else about this movie. Um, but before we get to what I thought of The Big Sleep, Emily, uh, what do you love about this movie so much? Um, well, as usual, besides lots of things, uh, <laughs> I think, I think, and particularly because it's our first, uh, our first Bogart and Bacall outing for this podcast, I'm going to have to go with their on-screen chemistry is just, I mean, it's ridiculous. It's like, it's like electric, like... From the as, very first scene, they're together. Yeah. Yup. And as soon as they're on the screen together, it's like it's like they go into extremely sharp focus and everything else around them might as well just be like a hazy blur. There are actually scenes where like, like in character in the scene, the other people in the scene are like, yo, wait, what, what are you doing? And they're like, leave us alone. <laughs> We're having our little thing. What did you come up here for? Why'd you lie to me on the telephone? I don't need you, Marlo. Just I don't keep out this? of this. I don't know how you got here, but I don't want you. Will you get out? Like, but the whole thing with like prank calling the police and, oh and all God. of that, that <laughs> amazing scene. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's it sounds simple, but like they're just they're so great together, and this movie just like showcases it perfectly and intentionally. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you, uh, I don't know if you looked this up at all to see that actually portions of this movie were substantially reshot. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, for a couple reasons, but but the main um, the main you know, goal and result of the reshoots was, was, uh, upping the, their screen time together and their chemistry on screen and all of that, that whole, their whole dynamic. Usually reshoots are just kind of like trying to make up for it. Oh no, it's like, it's like, it's like 20 minutes that are substantially different. Wow. Yeah. My DVD actually has them and they're not good. The old, the old version. Yeah. Um, yeah. And again, there are a variety of reasons that they did it, but the ultimate, like the ultimate result is just more scenes of more of them being all Bogart and yeah. Macaulay. I approve. Yeah, those are some <laughs> great scenes. Um, for all of the non-Bogart and Bacall scenes, I feel like I understood maybe 50% of it, of this, if I'm being <laughs> generous to myself. So I will apologize yeah. in advance for the litany of ill-informed things I'm going to say during this podcast. Let's just get that out of the way. It's okay, because as I said, I mean, I've seen this movie a million times, and at this point, I think I have a pretty solid handle on everything that happens, but... Okay, maybe you can help me then. Also not necessarily, though. (laughs) So... And because that's actually another result of the reshoots. It was kind of an unintentional, like, unintended consequence, is they, they kind of edited out some, like, 
exposition. Some clearer exposition. And they were like, it's fine. Their chemistry is great. And it is. I mean, I don't really, despite the confusion of it, like, I don't really miss miss exposition and clarity in it like i i don't know i like it better this well way. i mean yeah it's it's a it's a detective story and so yeah i i really liked this even though i don't think i understood most of it but i really really enjoyed this movie and i liked the feeling of not fully knowing what was going on i mean that's something that works well in this genre and in, in a noir story totally. in a detective story of like really actively trying to puzzle out what the fuck is happening and um obviously that wouldn't that wouldn't be true of every genre of every movie and it certainly would not have been as effective if we didn't have such a strong lead in bogart and obviously all the other actors and all that but like um yeah no even though at the end of it i'm still like wait what uh no i really i really enjoyed this this movie a lot and uh, i could totally see myself uh trying to rewatch this again in in the hopes of maybe understanding 52 percent instead of just 50 percent <laughs> well and for my part i mean i actually you mentioned the the way that this works well with this genre in a way that it probably wouldn't with most genres um and like i actually i, I think it's really great how like because you're kind of confused and figuring it out along the way like you actually get you actually get taken in and confused multiple times by yep. Humphrey Bogart's intentional misdirections that he pulls on the other characters. Like when he, you know, he he sets people up to get them to confess to things or to get information out of them or or whatever it might be, and as he's doing that, like you think that he's explaining what just happened. Like you think you you at first you take it at face value and then it's like, "Oh wait, no. I was he, just messing just with you. I was just yeah." yeah. Yeah, I think that really works very well. What's well, kind of so so like um I was thinking of two other sort of uh I guess you might call them detective stories although they're both unconventional. Um so the probably the best known detective is Sherlock Holmes at least to to the, the mass audience to the biggest yeah. audience. I mean a few and, people have heard of him. And I feel like this is so completely different from especially um the version of Sherlock that I'm kind of I've seen the most of which is the BBC Sherlock the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock where basically he's a super genius he kind of just walks into the room and he just analyzes it Have it's you super not fun. seen Jeremy Brett Sherlock? I've not. <gasps> oh that's is that on going the list. on the list. Yeah okay, it is. Continue. Um, but in, in the version of Sherlock that I've seen the most of, yeah, he walks into the room. It's really fun to see him quickly figure out exactly everything that happened. And like, it's, it's part of the game is just like playing catch up with this, this crazy genius man. Um, and then on the other hand, you have uh, a movie, which is, I guess, maybe the least, the, the, this is definitely, um, uh, fudging the definition of a detective story since it's, it's journalism, but all the president's men where, uh, you already know the conclusion of what's going to happen to, to Richard Nixon. And so, um, there's never really any confusion about, you know, what's going to happen in this story. Like anyone, watch, pretty much anyone watching the movie know, knows what Woodward and Bernstein are building towards. So the fun is in, and, and the, in the, um, the, what makes that movie great is just sort of seeing the process of it all, of seeing like all the steps they have to go to and all the dead ends to get to that foregone conclusion. Whereas this... Right, um, sort of a little... I mean, it's not exactly a detective story, but and it, it is a very similar story, though, to All the President's Men would be, just in the journalism sense, like Spotlight. Right, Again, you know, you know exactly what happens. You know what happens with the priests. You know they win the Pulitzer Prize. And yet all along, you're like wondering how they're going to get people to talk and how they're going to piece the story together and whether they're going to manage to publish it and all this kind of stuff. Quick tangent for my tangent, though, is that the extent of... Obviously, I knew a lot of the Spotlight story, but there's a lot I learned from that movie that's like, holy shit, this is so much bigger than I had any idea. Like, I feel like I got a very... um, Since we were... 
what how we were like 12 13 12 or 13 when that when that story was breaking so i feel like i got a uh very filtered version of the story and god damn that movie is great <laughs> oh i know but i just meant in terms of that that like you know the outcome but yes. it still keeps you guessing kind of effect whereas with this movie i'm still not even sure if i know the outcome and I, <laughs> i've already finished seeing it i um, can help you if you like yeah okay so 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 okay we start off, and Marla's been called in by General um, by General Sternwood, who has some papers from Geiger talking about his daughter Carmen's gambling debts. Do I even have the, the start there, right? Yeah, I think they're gambling debts. There's some kind of there's some kind of like IOU or note that she's signed off on. Okay, and I, uh, yeah, are, I believe they're gambling debts. Yes, he says, "Look, is that her signature?" And the general says, "Yes." So, right. um, so. He says that she's being blackmailed, possibly by Joe Brody. Right, who um, blackmailed her before. And he mentions Sean Regan. And then we find out two hours later that Carmen shot and killed Sean Regan. No? Okay. Uh, <laughs> where, where, Almost. Where, where, where did I... Almost. Okay. Um, so, and and this is something I wouldn't have been able to tell. I wouldn't be able to tell you if I hadn't literally just watched this movie. Yeah. Where, you know, plenty of these that are convoluted and complicated, whatever, I could tell you the plot of, like, the Maltese Falcon pretty handily. Yeah. But this, yeah, no. Um, but I did just watch it, so. Um, <laughs> no, uh, at least what we're supposed to think, anyway, because at the very, very end, he actually says that Eddie Mars, that's what he tells the cops, anyway, that Eddie Mars shot sean regan and i I mean i guess it could be that it was carmen and um but we're like supposed to think that eddie mars just convinced vivian that carmen did it so that that, that's what he had over vivian the whole time but marlo tells vivian he's not going to tell the police the full truth he says i'll tell them something pretty close to it right and it's um right so it's sort of ambiguous yeah. So when he's like interrogating Mar, uh, yeah, when he's interrogating Mars at the end, you know, he's calling him out on this stuff like you've never even seen Carmen, you didn't know her that day, like, you know, all of this kind of stuff uh, as a way of setting up like that he was lying and that he just made Vivian believe it. Um, and then, as you said, he ta- or as I said, he tells the cops that Mars did it. Now, to make things more confusing, I actually looked this up because I was I was looking up um, another thing uh, that. Considering considering the confusion that's inherent in watching this movie, you'll appreciate this anecdote, which I was looking okay. up to see if it was true, um, which I'll say in a second. But uh, but in the process of looking that up, I stumbled across another thing that I was completely unaware of, which is because I haven't read the book. Apparently, right. in the book, it's pretty clear that Carmen did it. That Carmen and did the, kill Regan. The Carmen did kill Regan, and in the movie, they muddled it up because they couldn't have the female protagonist and the, the love interest that Humphrey Bogart falls in love with and all of that couldn't be an accessory to a murder, which she essentially hmm. was if Carmen actually did it. So we're getting, it's like we're getting into 1940s Hollywood code nonsense. There's a whole bunch of stuff they changed. There's a lot of stuff was way more racy in the book, all kinds of things they had to change. But the I, so the thing I was totally surprised though by some of the stuff they did get away with in this. Oh, movie. I know they get away with so much in this movie. It's nuts. Like I was like, whoa, when was this movie made? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, the, whole the, thing entire- in the, uh, the bookshop across the street from Geiger's shop. And it's right. Like- It'll close for another hour or so. It's raining pretty hard. I got my car. Yeah, that's right, it is, isn't it? You know, it just happened. I had a bottle of pretty good rye in my pocket. I'd a lot rather get wet in here. 
Um, there's like movies today that I feel like wouldn't be gutsy enough to, to have that happen. I'll, maybe maybe it's just because they don't have Bogart. Like his like that that personality is just able to pull it off. But. Well, and all they do is you know all they do really is wink at it. But yeah, like when the taxi driver gives him his car, gives him her card, yeah. and he's like he's like I can call you anytime, day or night, and she's like, uh, night's better. I work during the day. That kind of yep. stuff. It's like, yeah, whoa, <laughs> hey, 1946. Yep. Good job. But no, yeah, so that's what I was saying is that actually the the movie intentionally makes it muddy um, okay. so that it's not a violation of, like, Hollywood censorship codes. Okay. Um, but no, the anecdote that I was actually looking up to see if it was apocryphal, which I don't think it is, like, I've read it in multiple places, is that when they were making this movie, they couldn't figure out for the life of them, this is, like, the screenwriters and the producers couldn't figure out uh, who had killed the chauffeur, whether he had killed himself or like someone had killed him. And if so, who? Right. And they apparently sent a cable to Raymond Chandler, the author to ask. And Raymond Chandler was like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) He had no idea. (laughs) So the movie went with like, it was pretty clearly Joe Brody, but they really just kind of left it. Meh. Yeah. I mean, we're pretty sure it was Joe Brody, but are we? We don't know because Joe Brody gets killed. Like, right? Okay, so so, so backing up to Sorry. the, but yeah, just just do bear in mind as much as I try to to help and figure it out myself. Also, even Raymond the screenwriters, Chandler, Raymond Chandler, who wrote the novel, doesn't know a hundred percent know what's going on in it. And the screenwriters who are interpreting his his, his words, like, and you know, even, even though they're making some changes, that and they in were some cases intentionally modeling the plot. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so okay, so backing up to the overarching stuff that's going on in this movie, the the the, the, the Uber plot here. So Carmen plot. is framed maybe for the murder of Regan if, if you if you believe that is actually Eddie Mars she was framed for that but then she's also framed for the murder of Geiger that's why there's the photo that's taken of her when she's super high at Geiger's house and that's the photo that's being used to blackmail her right correct and and to well to yes to blackmail her to get money from Vivian um and, and that's just because uh, Vivian's rich and her family's rich, right? The whole family's rich, yeah. And okay. so they're they're ripe for black. They're, the family's the family's rich and the daughters are wild, so they're ripe for blackmail, basically. Okay. Um, Which speaking speaking of the daughters, who the hell is Mister Rutledge? Oh, uh, oh, they say in like the in the very opening scene, two young daughters, one unmarried and one married a couple of years ago to a man named Rutledge, but it didn't take. Okay, that I was wondering the whole damn movie. Oh was no, like, yeah. They don't. Is, that's all. That's all they tell us. Okay. Is, is it didn't take? So I was expecting we don't know. someone at some point to be Mr. Rutledge. No, I, I was waiting no, for there is no Mr. Joe or Eddie or someone to actually <laughs> be Mr. Rutledge. Okay. No, and well, and the other thing also, I was going to say, just as you're talking about the various blackmail schemes, um, mm-hmm. in terms of people being framed for things, it's all for blackmail, though. Like right. It's all, yeah. So it's no one. No one has ever gone to the cops and accused any of these people of killing any of these people. It's it's all until Marlo the... starts calling cops. That's about the first time the cops come in. It's all just blackmail. It's all okay. You know, Eddie Mars is holding it over Vivian that Carmen allegedly killed Sean Regan, and but then uh, the general calls Marlo in, not knowing of the of the murder blackmail. He calls him in about a separate instance of blackmail. Correct. Okay. Only involving Carmen. Only involving Carmen, that and that, but they're tied to the same people who are blackmailing her about the murder because that's tied to to Eddie Mars as well, right? 
Well, no, because no one's no one is blackmailing Carmen about Sean Regan's murder. They're black. Eddie Mars is holding that over Vivian. God, okay. <laughs> so, I, I, so Carmen, I'm like kind of okay. like grasping at. I feel like I'm like right on the edge, and I'm just like I can feel the the tip. So of Carmen the... <laughs> individually is blackmailed three times that we know of. Right. One before the movie starts by Joe Brody. Yes. And we don't really know much about it. We're just alluding somehow to... gambling related. Well, and no, no, no. The involved. first no, the first time with Joe Brody, I think it's just pictures that are alluded to. Um, I could be wrong about that. Anyway, we don't know much about it. Just six months ago, somebody blackmailed. Carmen okay. and her father, you know, based on something Carmen did. Then, sure. then, Geiger, I think, is blackmailing her about the gambling debts. Okay. Could be wrong about that. But Joe Brody said that the third time that Carmen was blackmailed is only the second time that he blackmailed the family. So, right. so okay. the first two times people went to Carmen's father to blackmail him about shit that Carmen did. Right. The third time... Joe Brody goes to Vivian to blackmail her about the pictures that make it look like Carmen maybe killed killed or was an accessory to killing Geiger. Okay, I got it. So three instances of Carmen blackmailing for money. And then the Carmen Vivian... being blackmailed for, for money, you mean? Or, or being... Yes, yes, oh, yeah, yes, being blackmailed, sorry, yes. Yeah. Yes, three instances of Carmen being wrapped up in blackmail, people trying to extort money from okay. the family. The thing with Vivian is more that Mars has this like weird hold over her because he's convinced her that Carmen has killed Sean Regan. And it's sorry, kind sorry. of sorry, repeat repeat that back up. <laughs> so Eddie Mars has like Eddie Mars has like is sort of controlling Vivian um because he's convinced her that Carmen killed Sean Regan. Right. Yeah. Okay. But that's not necess- he's not necessarily blackmailing Vivian. He's right. We don't really. It's weird because um, it's not a hundred percent clear like what exactly he's getting, except that she keeps behaving suspiciously in the general direction of Eddie Mars, and it keeps making Marlowe go, "What does he have on you?" Let's begin with what Eddie Mars has on you. Yeah, and then we and find then, out and then what she's it like is. spending a lot of money, betting a lot of money at his casino. Right, she, she's like the, right. the high roller who keeps on doubling her bed, and right, is but none said of, to be. But that's all unreliable information. But, but we see her do it, though. No, yeah, but um, so we know that she gambles at Eddie Mars's place and is there sometimes and whatever. But and seems to know all the singers there. Seems seems to have a whole rapport. Everything with the... that happens in that scene is unreliable information. Why? Because it's all part of Mars and Vivian putting on a show for Marlowe that they don't know each other. Got it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it's like there might be some truth in it. And certainly she's comfortable there. Everybody there seems to know her, which they would, because she does go there. She says she tells him earlier that she likes to gamble, you know. So there's there may be some truth to some of it. But, like, him talking about, you know, her doubling down when she loses and that whole – his, you know, disgust with her as a customer – and, and maybe even the outcome of the roulette spin might have been fixed oh, yeah. in order to all generate of it. that outcome. All of it, is, all of it is a big setup so that, yeah. you know, it looks like a coincidence that she happens to be there. He badmouths her. She wins and he doesn't like it because she walks away with a bunch of money. Then he tries allegedly tries to steal it. But right. it's all a big old setup. Okay. So. Yeah. See? <laughs> 51 percent maybe <laughs> um, we should, we should have, probably uh you're just gonna have to watch it again yeah we should probably yeah. be talking about like what we thought of the movie rather than 
Yeah. Um, what happened I, in it? <laughs> so yeah. So I mean, just to, just kind of in general terms, like um, I, I liked the way this movie was paced a lot. Like again, even though I didn't understand obviously a generous portion of it, um, I uh, I like the fact that like it definitely took the time to slow down at certain points to really show the detective work that Marlowe was doing. That, that I it, love that. Like, it was actually, like, this is something that um, people who, I'm, I'm like, I'm not, I've never been a huge superhero comic fan. I've read, like, a, a bunch here and there, but not, like, I, I'm not a completionist or anything. But this is something that I hear all the time from people who are Batman fans. Is like, Batman is, like, the, the greatest detective in the movies, never show detective work, because detective work is quote-unquote boring. And I think this is, like, the perfect counterexample of, like, no, if you know how to shoot it right, if you know how to film it, and you have a good enough actor, detective work can be and fascinating. Enough, and enough, like, random helper chicks around to have a little bit of snappy dialogue with yeah, while you're else. waiting. Um, no, yeah, no, I absolutely love that the first thing that he does is go to the library. Yes. That's like one of my favorite things. And it's not like, it's not like, I mean, he might be doing other stuff at the library, but it's not to do like research on the players involved or whatever. Like, it's literally to brush up on some information to like Mm -hmm. manage to, to play the part that he wants to play and kind of suss out his suspicions and all of that kind of stuff which like but that's exactly what i was saying earlier with the sherlock so thing better. which was like if you actually see him learning information and then quickly applying that information to the case that that feels so much more interesting to me than like oh well, i just happen to know this thing you know like exactly. I, i'm just i'm just i'm already smart enough to to have picked up on this you know random fact you know at some point Right. I love that we ha- we see him actually have to go to the library and look up some stuff about rare books just so that he can dig around and find information about the alleged rare book dealer. Right. Uh, you know, rather than doing off a doing like a Sherlock or or even more of like a like a James at least Sherlock we know like that's sort of part of his thing that he knows everything, but then in the case of somebody more like, you know, maybe James Bond who just like mm-hmm. straight up casually just knows everything. Right. And I mean, you know, I love James Bond, but like, okay, really? Like, he's good at basically every sport and he knows like all things and can like call out supervillains on like whatever little piece of information, you know, like whether it's the appropriate temperature for a bottle of champagne or uh, I can't even think of of just. I mean, maybe there's implied that on all those, you know, all the travel he's doing, maybe he's doing some work there, but we never see it it happening. I think that the Archer interpretation of him refusing to read the dossier is probably (laughs) more accurate. Yeah. I guess in I guess in the Indiana Jones movies we sometimes see him like bringing research onto the plane. So so, he's a professor. So yeah, exactly. He's an academic. (laughs) Um, Part time. Um, But yeah, uh, barely. Yeah, and and then um, another thing I really like, I mean, kind of on the same note about just sort of how much I like the pacing is. So like, you have this big confrontation in Joe Brody's room where where Marlo calls his bluff like three times in 30 seconds. And, yeah, and he just will not make eye contact. Yeah, and then after he disarms everyone, after he collects everyone's guns and Carmen leaves, or Carmen and Vivian leave, um, there's the whole thing of like, oh, there's a knock at the door. And he says, like, oh, don't worry, I've still got her gun. And then, blam! You know, Brody gets shot. Like, I know. I like, like, like sat up, sat up upright. I was like, okay, whoa, okay, th- things, things are back on. We're, we're, we're no longer standing and talking in a room here. This is, this is getting real here. Um, still not I mean, totally sure if I people, understand. A lot of people get shot. So in this he movie. he was he was shot by the guy who was like the 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 not the chauffeur but the shadow for for Geiger, right? Correct, Carol Lundgren. 
Carol, right, Carol. I remember, I remember it was like, okay, I guess this must be the 40s, guy named Carol. Um, so. Yeah, who apparently, and this is more of, of Hollywood censorship stuff that I was completely unaware of until I looked it up moments ago. Yeah. Uh, apparently in the book, they are like him and Ka- Carol Lundgren and Geiger are. Lovers. Lovers, yeah. Huh. And I don't know how how explicit versus heavily implied it is in the book, but obviously it's like not even a thing here. We never even see like God Grenier never talks in the movie. Right, exactly. So. Yeah, he's he's just there and then he's dead. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So okay, so given the movie doesn't present to us the fact that they're lovers, you know, as part of the text. So Carol shot Brody because he believed that Brody shot Geiger. Correct. Right. So why did Carol believe that Brody shot Geiger? Like what? Mm. Why did he show up there? <laughs> Not a hundred percent sure. Okay. Um, I think it might just be because it makes sense. I mean, Brody admits to being like outside the house that night. Uh, yeah. And maybe even inside the house. I don't remember what Brody admits to. But Brody was around, and Carmen said he did it. And who knows if Carmen ran? I don't know if Carmen ran into Carol or not. It seems like she wouldn't have. But yeah. All right. Well. It might just be like semi-logical conclusion. Because Agnes or just from, anger, from I don't know. Geiger's shop was in Brody's apartment at the time when Brody was killed by Carol, who also worked for Geiger, right? So yes. Okay, so so I wasn't sure if there's some connection to Agnes there that I was missing. Like, uh, if there is, then I'm missing it too. I'm I'm actually not a hundred percent clear on on why exactly he shoots Joe Brody. Yeah, I mean, he thinks he killed him. I, well, no, I know it's because he thinks that he killed Geiger, but I don't know why he thinks that. Okay, <laughs> whatever. Um, but anyway, I mean, just like stuff like that. Like, I felt like the movie just um, like a lot of black and white people running around being very suspicious of each other with way too many guns. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, yeah, w- 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 there's a great Bogart line about uh, you know, you're the second guy I've met today that seems to think a gap in the hand means the world with a tail. Yeah, uh, in that same line. in that same Joe Brody scene. But yeah, no, I mean, apparently we're living in a world where like literally everyone has a little flip down panel under their dashboard <laughs> that's got a pair of guns strapped to it. So standard features and on every, every car made in the 1940s. Yeah, evidently. So, OK, so, yeah. So, I mean, just like stuff like that, where with Brody getting shot, I mean, um, there's a bunch of moments like that throughout this film where it's like, you know, um, slow, slow, boom, pay attention. And, you know, I just, I, I, I like that. I, I appreciate when a movie is clearly made with, with the, the, the care to slow down, but then speed up when it really needs to speed up and, and, and all of that. Um, I think that this one had a good rhythm to it all the way through. So. Yay. I'm glad you think that. I absolutely yeah. agree. And again, I think, you know, the plot is like stupid confusing but and I, and and clearly as we're learning in this discussion despite the numerous times i've seen it i still don't 100 percent have a full handle on all the details yeah uh but i kind of love that that doesn't matter you know like it's totally it's like it's just kind of not really what the movie's about exactly I mean, you know the movie's just sort of like fun and dark and bogart <laughs> and bacall and like well, i don't know do you really need more right um i'm looking back at my notes to see if there's anything else that i uh i missed yeah, I got caught up in this and completely forgot to take notes, so. Um, I was mostly taking notes just to keep track of all the character <laughs> names. I was just like... That's fair. There are uh, a lot of characters in this. Yeah. So, uh, I think this is just kind of like, maybe the sign of the times, but man, ba- back in the 40s, Bogart was, was in a lot of films where he was just smacking women around, just, just like, you know, it was a casual yeah. way of saying hello. 
Yeah, and also like a viable way of like waking someone up. Yeah, when they're in like a stupor. Yeah, no, I mean I don't love that. It's yeah. not great. But I mean, I guess it's just like you know that that was considered part of like the manly man image at that time. I guess I don't know. I guess yeah, and apparently the best way to to wake someone up out of a drugged out stupor is just to slap him across the face a couple times. Yeah, apparently. Um, God, the dialogue is really just so good, though, isn't it? I mean, some of the, like, just some of the turns of phrase, especially in that opening scene between him and uh, General Sternwood. Nice state of affairs when a man has to indulge his vices by proxy. You're looking, sir, at a very dull survival of a very gaudy life. Crippled, paralyzed in both legs. Very little I can eat, and my sleep is so near waking that it's hardly worth the name. I seem to exist largely on heat, like a newborn spider. The orchids are an excuse for the heat. You like orchids? Not particularly. Nasty things. Their flesh is too much like the flesh of men. Their perfume has the rotten sweetness of corruption. Well, and I guess that that's a little bit of that has is probably is probably some of the Faulkner influence on the screenplay, right? It's like yeah. just just unnecessarily beautiful language. That's absolutely not how anyone talks. But like, who even cares? Well, I mean, I was I was thinking about uh, the Third Man uh, a couple times during this film, and without getting into spoilers of what happens in that movie, there are scenes similar to to this in, in that where it's like two very important characters talking to one another and, like, they're talking over one another in, in certain ways that feel both natural and unnatural at the same time. Like, it feels too perfect, but at the same time it also feels like this is, like, a, a, a super real, you know, uh, this is this is a slightly altered version of reality where we're just, like, people just talk like that. Almost right. like, almost like, almost like a foreshad- or, or presaging Aaron Sorkin in a way. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So. No, I mean, I would, the, the, these are the screenwriters of all of the things that you've mentioned are people that would just, you would just love to have them just like writing your life. Right. Yeah. I never saw that movie that came out last year, Trumbo, uh, which was kind of promising to be sort of like about that sort of person. And all the reviews were just like, eh, it's okay. (laughs) Um. Well, uh, all the other notes (laughs) that I took uh, were just about uh, things relating to next week's topic. So I will hold those until uh, a future time. (laughs) Well, I mean, I think, um, I could probably discuss a lot about this movie, but maybe since I know it's related, maybe we should just uh, jump to next week's topic or. Yeah, I don't want to cut. I mean, did you want to talk about anything else? No, or? I mean, I think, again, I just I would just like to continue gushing about like the pretty dialogue and, the, <laughs> you know, awesome checkered suit that Lauren McCall wears and all kinds of things. But um, oh, yeah, she was that her real singing voice? Because damn. <laughs> oh, yeah, she sings in a bunch of stuff. Okay, I didn't know that she could sing. Yeah, um, she can sing. It's a whole thing. But yeah, so let's uh, go ahead and start talking about uh, yeah, next so, week. Uh, so I, I already know the answer to this question, Eric, but for the benefit of our lovely <laughs> listeners, what will we be watching or listening to or doing next week? Well, so, so normally we, we, at this point in the show, we kind of surprise one another with sort of our picks for next week. Uh, I specifically asked that Emily pick The Big Sleep for us to watch sometime this season because I wanted to immediately follow it watching The Big Lebowski. Yeah, which allegedly they have something to do with each other, um, which I have yet to figure out. But I also they are definitely very different movies. I don't want to like <laughs> prime you too much, but there's certain I, well, I was gonna overlap. say I was I was gonna say I haven't made it through the Big Lebowski ever, but I have yeah. probably started it more times and seen more <laughs> of it than most other things on our on our list that I for which I am the noob. Yeah. Um, and so far, like, I mean, 
I don't a hundred percent see it, but I kind of maybe just like all the crazy disparate characters. Let, well, let's and save this for next week until after you've actually seen the whole movie without falling asleep. <laughs> and I could see Tara Reid's character kind of being Carmen Sternwoody, just in her annoying flirtation behavior. I'm gonna I'm gonna bite my tongue for now. That's, that's and... all I've got. But I've only <laughs> I couldn't even tell you how far into the Big Lebowski I've seen because I don't know. Yeah. Well, next week we'll be watching all of it. So <laughs> imagine. Um, and this time I'll be the one making sure to have you know caffeine or whatever. Caffeine. Yeah. So it's you're not falling asleep. It's just yeah. gonna be caffeine. All right. Well, uh, until we get to uh, the Big Lebowski, Emily, where else can we find you online? I am on Twitter at EJ Reports. And I'm on Twitter at HeyHeyESJ. This is Giant Geek vs. Mega Noob, signing off. This has been Giant Geek vs. Mega Noob. For more, visit GVNPodcast.com.